Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I'll be speaking with some of Australia's most brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into concrete reality. We had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work. Yeah, you know, we really respect our shareholders and, and to me you survive if you add value. So, you know, I could look at it and say I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. Some are household names and some you may never have heard of yet. Today, enjoy part two of my chat with Michael Cameron. My name is Michael Cameron. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Rome to Rio. Rome to Rio is a website that helps you discover all your options for getting from A to B. So it might be by train, by bus, by ferry, rideshare, Uber, uh, maybe taking a, a camel if required. So you can put in an origin, maybe it's your home address, maybe you want to figure out how to get to the island of Capri off the coast of Italy. And Rome to Rio will show you all your different options for getting there from door to door across all the different modes of transport. 2012, these angel investors, these two guys come in. Then you went the venture capital route, plus you got some funding from a government source. Yeah, so the government helped us out. Uh, there was a program called Commercialization Australia. Over a couple of years, they ended up investing a total of $1.2 million into the business. And that was money that was dollar for dollar matching what we could raise from angel investors. So you had to do applications for that, but it was a, a great bonus to have access to that program. There was also the R&D incentive scheme, which still exists today as well, which really helps you out by reducing the costs of what you're spending on R&D. In terms of investment, we never really went down the venture capital route. So we did two angel rounds. Uh, we did a second round involving Melbourne Angels who have been great supporters of the business. And then the business became profitable after that. And so we ultimately didn't raise that professional money. Amazing. But I mean, you know, you had been in the US, you'd been working for this massive company, and yet you still decide to come back to Australia where capital is so scarce and the, the startup scene is really sort of mm. poor. Yeah, probably wasn't a smart decision. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember we spent a bit of time in the US in Silicon Valley after we launched and they would all say to us, so when are you moving to the Valley? And Bernie and I would say, we just moved back from the US. We're not moving here again. So they just think it's the centre of the world, which oh, in yeah. tech land it probably is. I think it's changing a bit. I think the Valley is, I think because of cost of living, more and more businesses are starting to start up in other parts of the US and there's, I guess, better ecosystems around the world. But I think at that time, back in 2011, 2012, um, it probably very much was the centre of the startup universe. But, it, you know, it was, I think, a very personal choice that from for lifestyle reasons, we wanted to be here in Australia. Uh, we wanted to build a business in Australia. And uh, that may not have been the optimal place to set up. Uh, but then there were a lot of upsides for being in Australia as well. And I think the people, the calibre of people that we've been able to hire and the... Um, the way that a business like Rome to Rio can really stand out as a shining example of being a startup here in Melbourne, whereas maybe in the Valley we would be uh, a much more of a small fish in a very big pond. It still leads me to ask you, you left this no doubt comfy cocoon of Microsoft. You were probably pretty well paid and you could have had a great career there. So you were prepared to risk a lot. 
Yeah, I think one of the things about entrepreneurs is that you don't like being told what to do. Um, you're, you're pretty un- unmanageable. And so I think you reach a point in your career where inherently you become a bit unemployable. Maybe you're too much of sort of like a rogue child. <laughs> and so it becomes, I think, the logical step then to go and start your own business. And I say now having started a business and run a business, I would say I, I would not be employable. I don't think I'd be a very good uh, good person to, to have reporting to. <laughs> Michael, do you and Bernie reckon that you did bet everything? No, I think we always knew that we could go back to a Microsoft and earn a good salary again. And we always had that fallback. That said, after working on the business for eight, nine, 10 years, you do reach the point where you've bet a lot on this. Um, you've, you've built up a team. There's a lot of people who are relying on you to hit payroll each week. You've invested so much of your time and energy into this business that you very much want to see it succeed. Do you consider what you've built is an empire? No, I don't say it's an empire. I think we built a great team and I think we built a fantastic product and I think that's a piece probably of a bigger puzzle that there is these other businesses in the travel industry that are, are doing amazing things and that what we've built really slots into a general improvement in the online tools that are available to users for traveling. Now, I'm not in the tech space all the time, uh, but I know what a unicorn is, I think, Mm -hmm. and maybe our listeners do too, but what's a cockroach and which (laughs) one are you? I think Rodrigo is very much more the cockroach uh, than the unicorn. (laughs) Not a good term, Michael. No, maybe not, maybe not. It was, I believe, Paul Graham who was the founder of the Y Combinator program in Silicon Valley who termed the cockroach. And one of the cockroaches he described was Airbnb, who they invested in because they were a business that were able to make money very early on and therefore were sort of indestructible. Now, it turns out Airbnb is now a unicorn. So I guess cockroaches can become unicorns. And I think the same is very likely for Rome to Rio as well, uh, that it's a business that has a lot of potential to, to keep growing. But I think the way that we ran the business as, as a couple of engineers was perhaps, and, and in Melbourne, uh, was very much less on raising large amounts of capital and building a, a giant unicorn business and more about being efficient with money, uh, building a small but high caliber team and then building the product and technology we were really passionate about. So were you always very careful with your dough and cash flow and, you know, how are we going to pay the next bill and let's not spend too much? Yeah, definitely. And maybe maybe too much so. I think we could have been a bit more risk tolerant. We could have been a bit more ambitious. Uh, we could have maybe raised more capital, brought new investors into play, even once we became profitable in 2015. So if there was one thing I might do differently, if I was to do it again, it would be maybe to to be more ambitious and be a bit less conservative with the money. So you've been profitable since 2015. That's pretty impressive for a business that only started in the end of 2010. I mean, what's been your year on growth that you've achieved and and how many users? Yeah, so we pretty much doubled uh, for each year through that sort of 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17 period. So we had some really great growth there in terms of revenue and users. Today, the site receives 18 million unique visitors per month, which is a a pretty substantial user base. If you compare that to, you know, other websites, travel websites out of Australia, I suspect we're the top, if not one of the top. Part of that is really down to our global user base that 
we're not just constrained to Australians when it comes to users. We have something like 3% of our user base is Australians um, and something like 60% are Europeans. So we're very much tapping into that global market, which provides a really big opportunity. What was your biggest failure? I would say it is the maybe the failure to grow the business bigger as an independent company, maybe to bring in new capital, to bring in that professional expertise and refresh the shareholder base. I think those are things that we could have done to maybe grow the business to be bigger as an independent entity. That said, we um, have had a really good journey and a really good outcome for the business that we have now sold the business uh, to be part of another business based out of Berlin that will be able to invest in the business and hopefully see it um, grow um, under their leadership. What advice would you give to someone wanting to do a startup? Hopefully not, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, I mean, yeah, be, be, be aware of what you're getting into. It's not an overnight success. I think the typical time frame to make the business a success is seven years. So perhaps don't be naive about that. But then sometimes if you're naive about that, then you're more likely to actually do it. So I think some degree of naivety is actually helpful. I think be conservative with cash flow. Sorry, what does that mean, being conservative with cash flow? What does that actually mean? How did you manage your cash flow through those years? I think just not be reckless with spending. I think you want to set a good example there that uh, you might not be hiring too aggressively. You might be um, flying economy. Um, You might be not getting a fancy office until you need it. So in our case, we were working out of a co-working space until the business had over 30 employees. So I think there's various things that you can do to be very careful with your expenses uh, and not be too extravagant. And I think you really want to lead with example as well on that front. You've also been able to innovate fairly constantly as you've gone on to constantly improve your offering. How have you done that and what do you actually make money from mostly today on Rome to Rio? Yeah, I think innovation's key, especially in Uh, the software industry. And one of the great things about it is you can change the product so quickly and you can see how users react to those changes instantly, which is fascinating. We often do things around A-B testing or split testing, which is where you might consider changing a part of the site. And it can be something mundane. It can be the color of button or it can be a bit of text on the screen. And you show one version to 50% of users and the original to another 50% of users and see what happens. Wow. Uh, and it's really interesting what users do. You can, you can never guess what they prefer. For example, a button with the phrase car hire gets, say, 20, 30% more clicks than a button with the phrase rental car. Like who would, who would know until you run that test? That makes no sense. <laughs> it makes no sense. But it does actually. There's some psychology around it. The, the word car hire is shorter than rental car. Um, generally shorter bits of text, people are uh, more likely to read them. So there is a whole lot of psychology around it. But these these things can have a big impact on your revenue just by adding 20, 30% here, 20, 30% there. Often it compounds. And then before you know it, you've you've grown revenue um, and doubled it and tripled it, which is really exciting. For us, revenue is very much from our affiliate relationships with a whole lot of different partners, whether it be rental cars or booking.com or Expedia or Trenitalia or Deutsche Bahn, all the different things that we display on the site, we also get commissions when the user goes off and books. Okay, so how does a user know that they're getting actually the best or most efficient way to get from A to B 
if you're getting commissions, you might be getting commissions more from the trains than the buses. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think that's about building your trust with your users. We've always had the philosophy that we never change the order of the results. We never reduce the relevance for the perspective of earning money. Right. Um, but what we do do is we often will promote, for example, hotels to users more often than they might be typically interested in hotels because it is a high commission source for us. So there is a tension there between an optimal user experience and what you want to put in front of the user. And at the end of the day, we need to run a business here and we need to be a profitable business. So that is always a tension between the optimal user experience and what makes sense commercially. Yeah. Now, the search engine optimization SEO, mm. that seems to be extraordinarily important. Yep. Why is it so important and how much did you focus on that? I mean, that was really a key for us to build out our, our user base. SEO is great if you can do a good job of it. And, and sorry, SEO, does it essentially mean being at the top of the Google list as yep. it comes up? Yep, or the Bing. Let's put Bing in there. All right. <laughs> um, but yeah, getting towards the top or somewhere in those top 10 results on Google and getting users to click through. And so you can pay for positions on Google or you can get it from free by just being the right answer. So convincing Google that you really are the best result for a user to click on when they might search from Aachen to Ghent is part of the sort of craft of SEO. And having a good product is really, you know, the key that underpins all of that. So for us, SEO has been really critical and it's driven a whole lot of traffic to our product essentially for free. I mean, you have to invest in it. There's a lot of R&D you need to do to perform well in SEO. You want to have SEO experts on your team. Uh, we have a lot of data scientists in our company that work on it. Um, but once you've sort of got that set up, it is free traffic and that's really great for the bottom line. So you're essentially saying you don't actually have to buy it all the time to get to the top of or, or in the, the first 10 of the Google list. Yeah, that's right. So you've got SEO, which is really the free traffic. And then you have SEM, which is search engine marketing. Mm. And that's where you pay to have those, you know, sponsored links on the Google results. And that's something that we invest in as well. Um, and that performs pretty well. But the downside is you need to you need to pay for it. Okay, a couple of things that I, I, I feel listeners would want me to ask you. I mean, Bill Gates had pretty much left Microsoft, I think, around the time, you know, when, when you guys were there to concentrate on his and Melinda's mm. foundation. But his legacy, his persona would have still been writ large at Microsoft. He must have still had an extraordinary impact on the company you worked for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the legacies of Bill Gates was how he thinks about doing things efficiently. If you are to watch on Netflix, there's a great documentary series. It's a three-part called Decoding Bill Gates. And it talks about how he ran the organization and how he made Microsoft such a success, but also the great work that he's doing with the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation that he and, he and Melinda are doing. And you can see that he approaches everything from a very much a technology lens, but also the way he thinks about efficiencies. So whether he's working on eradicating polio or thinking about nuclear power or thinking about how to make toilets more efficient and fix sanitation, everything he's doing is about reducing the costs and rolling it out at scale efficiently. And I think that mindset uh, is very 
it's something that really rubs off uh, on. I think it rubbed off on me and a lot of people who work for Microsoft is just the way that they they operate quite efficiently. Now, as a businessman, he was pretty pretty ruthless as well. But I think when they went through the controversy around Netscape, um, I think that really had quite an impact on mm. him, and I think he really mellowed. So by the time we were at Microsoft, he was just chair, um, and the only interaction I had with him was when he came and visited Bing and it was a big deal and, you know, it was sort of like having the rock star visit. Yeah, having God come down. Yeah. I mean, these these people, especially sort of the, the, the founders in the US, they really are these sort of cultural icons. And, yeah. uh, and that's part of the, the draw and the excitement sometimes working these sort of businesses. Oh, extraordinary experience. What was the biggest risk you took to start Rome to Rio? Um, I think it was very much the element of starting a business um, and not drawing a salary, starting a family at the same time. Um, I think those were the sort of the risks that, that played together. And then I think as you grew, you know, hiring a team and getting your own office, all these sort of things layer up levels of commitment. And so their additional risk, I guess just the stakes increase as you, as you get bigger and bigger. And what was the biggest hurdle you had to get over to grow and to keep it all together and afloat? I think growing a team, and this was probably the biggest challenge for me personally as a software engineer, I feel like what I know well is algorithms and data. Yeah. And then to build a business, it's all about people. And people behave in different ways. They have different motivations. Everyone brings a different skill to the table. And getting everyone working together, getting everyone rowing in the same direction is an ongoing challenge. There's always something that you need to improve. There's always some issue to work through, whether it's what's your recruiting process? Well, how do you do compensation? Is everyone being paid fairly? How are you going to do the sort of next salary reviews? Should you be offering stock to your employees? Um, should you introduce a short-term incentive bonus program? What sort of perks should you offer your employees? How do you get your employees to work together and communicate. What about working from home? Should people be allowed to work from home and how often? Um, so many things to work through. And and that's been a real learning experience. Uh, for me personally, I found just sort of navigating all of those different challenges. And that's part of what's made it really fun as well. You said as recently as September of 2018 that you, quote, still have some way to go with our dream. So why sell out? I think for us, we had actually in many ways accomplished the basic principle of what we wanted to do with Rome to Rio. So we'd built this business. We had built a team here in Melbourne, which was, I think, one of the objectives was to build a sort of team with a US tech culture in Melbourne. We'd built the product that was very much fulfilling the vision that we had. We'd built a massive user base. And so to us, the next step for us was about ticketing. So not just showing to users how to get from A to B, but actually allowing them to buy the tickets and all the tickets for the train and the bus and the ferry um, to get between the origin and destination. And so we started down that path. And what we found as we went along it and started integrating with Trenitalia and Renfair and, and Amtrak was just how much work was involved in doing that. And we were sitting here as a sort of 40-person company starting down that path, and we looked over at a competitor of ours, a couple of competitors. Um, there, there are two, I think, big ones. One's Trainline, but the one that's really exciting and I think have the, the most global ambitions is Omeo. Um, so they're based in Berlin. And we looked over and we saw them having raised 100 times as much capital as us 
I have a team of 400 people mm. and they were just focusing on solving the ticketing piece. And so it became more and more clear for us that rather than trying to compete with this business, uh, that we should really explore joining forces. Yeah. And as that's gone on and as we sort of talked to them over, you know, a substantial period of time, almost a year, it became more and more clear that the joining forces with them made a lot of sense and also that they had the expertise to help our company scale to 100 people, to 200 people, to 400 people, which I think is a very different skill set to what we as founders had. So from that point of view, I think it's been um, a really smart move to join forces with them. And I think the business in some ways is going it, to, it's, it's a bit of a sort of double-edged sword. I think the business is really going to now grow at a rate that it hadn't before under their guidance, which is a little two-edged sword, a little bit, you sort of like, geez, you know, well, that could have been, that could mean us as shareholders growing it to that level. But that said, I think it's their expertise that's going to help it grow to that level. Yeah. Well, anyone listening to this who sat on the Train Italia website and tried to work out how to get their tickets, they know exactly what you're talking about, that it might have been, you know, it's a, it's a massive undertaking to get the ticketing right. It is. Yeah. And all of these European operators um, that are often state owned, um, so they're not typically motivated yeah. to be, you know, commercially savvy and integrate with partners. That said, I think more of them, more and more are coming on board, but it is a, it is a big mission. It's a, it's a long journey to be able to unify all of the world's transport for selling the tickets as well. And yeah. Omeo are very much thinking about that from a sort of seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year perspective. And I think um, that's what's, it, that's what it requires. And how long are you locked in there for or how long are you staying? So I've committed to stay here, um, help run the organisation until next year and then, um, you know, see what happens after that. I think this is very much my baby uh, and I'm sure Bernie, you know, feels very much the same way. So I think we'll always be involved with the business in in some capacity and I, I think, you know, with the the Omeo team coming here and um, and helping to run the organisation. It'll be interesting to see uh, what role we can play to add value, um, and then uh, and then what time we might have to work on other projects and interests. Mm, so, is it still going to be based in Melbourne? Have they committed to that? They have. Um, that's one of the great other great things about the deal with Omeo is they're very much committed to keep running the organisation here in Melbourne. Uh, the brand will continue. The The product will continue to operate as an independent product with that independent brand. And the team here at Melbourne is going to continue and, if anything, grow um, beyond what, what, you know, what our ambitions were. So what are you going to do with the estimated $40 million you've both made in nine years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... Um, there's uh it's certainly had a life-changing impact on on Bernie and myself and I think thinking about how we use a sort of life-changing event to you know think about the rest of our lives and that might be starting a new business uh it might be thinking about philanthropic projects it might be thinking about investing in other startups in Melbourne I think that's something that we've got the sort of next year or so to really think about um but my wife and I are particularly passionate about climate change. I think that's something that is an area that, although there are political roadblocks at the moment, I think there's also a need for better data. And one of the things that we found quite interesting with Rome to Rio is how hard it has been to put CO2 carbon calculations onto the site. 
So we really wanted to have wanted for a long time to be able to show to the user, okay, if they take the plane, it's going to have this much of a carbon impact. If they take the train in Germany, it's this much. And if you take a bus in Brazil, it's this much. And it's complicated to figure that out because electricity in Germany might be produced in different ways to say in France or a plane uh, of a certain size and capacity that takes two landings and, and takeoffs to get to the destination might have a different carbon impact to a plane that flies direct and is of a different model and make. So I'm quite passionate about the fact that we need better data. Uh, We need better data as consumers for all the things that we do in our lives, whether it's buying a television or recycling a plastic bag or, in this case, travel. Uh, We're all making decisions every day in our lives and having a better understanding of what the carbon impact of those decisions I think is really important to help us make choices to reduce our carbon footprint. Maybe trying to reduce the use of plastic bags is so insignificant compared to running an air conditioner. There needs to be information available to the public that help them make those decisions. So that's the kind of project I'd love to be able to invest uh, the, the sort of time and resources that we now have uh, to to help with. Michael, I'm asking my guests these next few questions. What are you obsessed about at the moment? We're definitely obsessed with with the, the the climate change carbon impact. I think that's uh, something that's that's really important to focus on. Very much around you know travel and how how we travel. I think that's really critical as well. And and the concept of slow travel. I think over tourism is a really interesting thing. And we have this growing middle class, uh, you know, especially with India and China, and the impact that that's having on our world is something that I think we really need to be smart about. So whether it's about the carbon footprint that's produced by having um, so many people who are now affluent enough to be able to travel and buy things. Um, But then also, how do we make sure we don't have overcrowding of of popular destinations? Um, How do we, Mm. you know, keep the best elements of of life on earth as we really change the life and quality of life for so many people? Do you have a business motto? And if you do, what is it? A business motto? I'm not sure if we we do. I mean, we certainly think a lot about our values as a business and transparency has been key to that, building a, a you know, in, a, engaged workforce and energetic and fun place to work has been really important. Um, innovation has been a key value for us as well, sort of challenging things and doing things differently. And, uh, and thinking about the user, thinking about the end user and the impact of what we do has on them has also been a really key value. Do you have a life motto? No, I don't, (laughs) but I'm happy to hear recommendations for one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like the same, having some values around uh, what you're doing and how you're living. Absolutely. And maybe I'll have a bit more time in the, in the, you know, in the future to be able to craft one. Michael, how much of your success at Rome to Rio is your innate intelligence, your skills, your computer expertise? In other words, you and how much is luck? I think uh, I think lots luck. I think uh, you make your own luck, though. So they talk about sort of those serendipitous conversations you have. You meet someone at a pub, or you meet someone at a meetup event, um, and those things end up meaning you bring a particular person on board to your journey, and then um, those people have a huge impact, and you couldn't have imagined completing the journey without them. So. I think a lot of it's luck, but in some sense you make your own luck and a lot of that luck is around 
just meeting the right people and and getting them on board. Michael Cameron, co-founder of RomeToRio.com. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Helen. I've really enjoyed our chat and um, it's, uh, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks. And be sure to subscribe as there'll be plenty of upcoming episodes with more amazing Australian innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their idea into an empire.